Today, I invite Nick Janitakis backstage and we cover a huge range of topics. How Nick's using our source code to build his own video platform, coding practices we've developed over the years, newsletters as the new social network, how Nick produces his videos, and much more. Here we are, already chatting. That is interesting how that works too. Like I tend to buy donate, uh, domain names first as well, and then they just sit there and nothing happens. Yeah, so just last Friday, Adam and I were talking and, and we have this idea and we're talking about the idea and we're trying to, like we're both independently doing domain name searches while we talk about an idea, you know, because you almost have to have, for some reason, there's like a, a road bump and you can't continue forward until you have a, a good domain. <laughs> but then also, but lots of times... You, you, that's all the further it goes, right? Like you get the domain and you're like, yes. And then there's some sort of satisfaction to that, that it almost removes the impetus, or at least it has for me where I'm like, that's good enough. I'm going to sit on that for a few minutes and it turns into 10 years. Yeah, no, I feel the exact same way. So Janitakis. It's Greek. And you're from Greece? No, I was uh, born in the US. Just my dad's okay. side's Greek. Okay. Where do you live? New York. Okay. Manhattan or? No, it's uh, Long Island. It's a little bit east of Manhattan. Born and raised? Yep. Cool. Would like to move eventually, but uh, I want to become one of those uh, digital nomads where you just travel the world for a couple of months in different countries. Isn't that what everybody, that's like the dream right there of the digital nomads. And then they write blogs about their nomadic and we're all just read the blogs. And- Envy them. Yep. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes. That's like Instagram for nerds is blogs of digital nomads, you know, where we can see the lives that they've prepared, you know, handwritten what their life is like, and we can just envy them. Uh, very much Instagram's, Instagram style, at least, where you see the curated version of people's lives, and then you look at your real life and you think, this isn't adding up. Right. You see the five seconds of 24 hours. Right. By the way, backstage, very laid back. In fact, this could be the show right here. Um, why not, in fact? So, so listeners out there, if you have listened to the re- most recent episode of The Changelog, which would mean you're a hardcore listener, because this is the Monday following, I think we release it on Saturday this week, because reasons. If you listen to that, uh, episode 344, Inside the 2019 infrastructure for changelog.com, you'll hear Gerhard mention Nick. And I'm not sure if he called you Nick Janatakis. He might have called you Janatakis. I can't recall what he called you. But he mentioned Nick that you are uh, a person who's been in the changelog community for a while. You've been involved in our code base. You are uh, using it to a large degree for inspiration or even guidance on the CMS that you're building for your business. Why don't you? Uh, introduce yourself to me. I mean, I know that's about as much I know about you. I know you're making videos online. I know you're, you're big into Docker and that kind of stuff, and you teach people these things, but that's, that's about all I know. So maybe introduce yourself to me. Uh, we've known each other just casually in our Slack chat, but uh, we tend to talk shop, and I thought, hey, let's hop on backstage and talk shop because it's fun, and others can benefit perhaps as well. But yeah, tell everybody what you're up to with your videos. Right. So the uh... I guess the TLDR, my name is Nick Chenatakis. I've been uh, a freelance web developer for like about 20 years. And uh, yeah, no, as of about four years ago, I started doing video courses 
mainly around Docker, Flask, and other programming topics. And um, since then, I started a blog, and I pretty much write about everything openly from, you know, like the dev business point of view up to technical details as well. So that's definitely where your and my paths cross. Is the, both, well, like I said, both the technical details and on, on the dev business end. Now you're selling subscriptions or videos to, directly to developers. We are you know, providing content for developers, and so we have a lot of similar thoughts, similar tasks, similar, I mean, exact same audience, um, slightly different angles on it. But uh, talk about your, your application you're building. I know you have, this is a side project to a certain degree, and you have existing videos that you're, you're, you've been selling other ways. Maybe just help me understand where you're at in a technical sense. So when it comes to hosting videos, um, you don't necessarily need your own, you know, you don't need to develop your own course hosting platform. So there are these other platforms out there like Thinkific and Teachable. I'm not sure if you've heard of them before, but they're basically like a course hosting platform as a service, right? They're a SaaS app that you sign up for. You pay whatever, you know, 50, 100 bucks a month, and they give you the whole entire, like the whole enchilada. So people can sign up, they can create an account, they can put in billing information, credit cards or PayPal, and then they can go consume the courses that you've created because those Teachable and Thinkific sites, uh, if you're the course instructor, you know, you get an admin backend where you can assemble the course however you see fit, right? You create your table of contents, upload the videos, etc. So they're just like an end-to-end um, SaaS for building courses and distributing, distributing them as well. But, you know, when you're a developer, I don't know, you just think in your head like, you want to develop things. And I feel like, <laughs> I think developing my own course platform has been something I've wanted to do for a long time. But I still do freelance work now. So it's very, very hard to balance the time of like creating the actual course I want to create and then develop the course platform and then do freelance work and then, you know, do what I can to contribute to open source, like based on projects I'm doing, writing blog posts, you know, the whole like social media thing, like personal life, like there's a lot to take on. But um, so I actually did start building my own course hosting platform about nine months ago. And this is kind of how I got introduced to your code base. Yeah. So I determined I wanted to use Phoenix with Elixir. And, um, you know, right now it's quite popular, right, as a technology, but there, it's, it's not on the same level as Rails when it comes to tutorials and things like that. So it was a little bit tricky to get started, especially if you've never used a, like a functional programming language before, which I haven't done. Mm-hmm. And then I just ran across uh, the changelog code base. And, it's kind of funny because uh, one of the courses that I wrote, and I'm, I'm not trying to like pitch my courses here, but no. you know, like build a SaaS app with Flask. So it's a Flask uh, course where we actually build like a real world SaaS app, you know, accepting like monthly payments and like custom admin dashboards and Stripe integration and all this good stuff. And it's like a real application over like 4,000 lines of Flask, et cetera. And I, I, I was very, very, very fortunate to find your project on GitHub because it reminded me of like, that type of project. Like it's not just a simple to do app or here's how to make like a blog with comments. You know, it's a real app, like running in production, right? Really good test coverage, really good everything, best practices. And like for me, that was heaven. Like I basically used your platform as almost my sole learning experience for getting used to Phoenix and Elixir. Like sure I read the documentation, but it was more like I read the docs to get the super duper basics. And then it was like I'm just looking at your code. And then occasionally harassing you in Slack if I get really stuck. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, well, no, 
What, I owe everything about of the platform. That? Yeah. Oh. No, go ahead. You were just going to give me a compliment. I'll take it. Oh, yeah. No, I said I owe basically <laughs> everything based on what I've done so far on the course platform to your progress of uh, what you've done for the community on that front. Awesome. So that, that relates to what I was just going to say was we were on WordPress for years. In fact, we started on Tumblr. This is even before I was involved. Adam and Wynn set up a Tumblog. I think that's what they were called, Tumblrs or Tumblogs um, back in the day because that Tumblr was super hot. And um, then it moved to WordPress when it relaunched in 2012, I think, or 2013. Adam did most of the heavy lifting there, and we'd been on WordPress for years, and it just... <sighs> lots of headaches. You know, we love WordPress. It's a great general-purpose CMS, but like you said, as developers and as hackers, we have like very specific needs and we want things to work very specific ways. And the freedom to diverge from the mainstream is really what, what we desire. And I build web apps for a living and I have for you know, a decade, uh, mostly in Rails previously. So I, you know, I wrote the new CMS in Elixir and Phoenix and had to go through a lot of the learning curve and the pain and the, you know, <laughs> One of my, I think, strengths as a developer is I will just endure until I actually figure it out, you know? So it took us a long time to get up and running, but uh, the language itself, once I understood pattern matching, was was very productive. It was just like, okay, now how do I do this this particular thing in Elixir or in Phoenix, you know, in this context, which I know how to do very well in other contexts. How do I do it here? And so it was very much a learning experience for me. In fact, we didn't open source it right away. We open sourced it maybe like a month after we relaunched on the new CMS. Um, and some of our internal conversations, just Adam and I about open sourcing it, we knew we wanted to. But the question was like, what value would it provide others? Because because the first fear is like, well, someone's just going to rip us off and build a competing, a competing podcast and news platform, like basically use our platform to compete with us in this space. It's kind of like, well, the platform is not really what we do. You know, like it is more so now because we have news and it, it streamlines the way we put content out and everything. But if you're going to like actually compete with us, you have to create good podcasts. That's really what you have to do. So there wasn't too much fear of that. Also, it was completely custom. And I didn't build it like this is a general purpose podcasting CMS, right? Um, we had our own sl show slugs hard-coded into areas of the code base. It was not built as a general purpose thing. And so I thought, well, the, the way it's going to provide value is the exact way that you're using it, which is there weren't very many, and there still aren't very many open source, real world, even if it's a pretty small domain and pretty basic functionality in terms of like, it's a content management system with some nifty features. Um, it's going to be a good example for people. And in the readme, I said, you know, should I, <laughs> one quite like an FAQ, should I use this? For my podcast, it's like, probably not. You probably shouldn't fork this and like, or have like a deploy to Heroku button for you. It doesn't really make sense. But you could absolutely use it in the exact way that you're using it, which is kind of like just a path that somebody else has plowed down in front of you so you can save time and, and learn along the way. So it's pretty awesome that you've, you've gone whole hog into that and basically built your own. Using ours is kind of a roadmap. Yeah, and just to be clear, like I never even well, I did clone the project just so I can uh, you know, grep through the code base locally, but yeah, I, I am not like I didn't fork your you project. You started completely from scratch. Yeah, brand new, totally from scratch. And then I just pulled out the components of uh things that I liked from your app into mine. 
So like the user registration with the magic links and all that stuff, like, uh-huh. yeah, that's very non-specific to a podcast platform. Sure. I talked about one of my strengths as a developer. One of my weaknesses as a developer in terms of being generally useful code is I don't ever, pretty much ever, go back and abstract libraries from things I build. Like, I will build this link, magic link-based sign-in system. And if I were to start tomorrow on a brand new site, instead of like packing that up into a, in a right, a mix, what do they call them? I forget. Libs? Packages? I don't know. Instead of packing yeah, it up in any way. Yeah, packages. And then reusing my library and then like having a library. I will actually do the same thing that you just did, is I will go look at my old code and I will write it again with my new found knowledge or like, you know, improve it the second time. I don't do libraries. It's just weird. I know a lot of people think in libraries. Like in generally general use, like re- reusable libraries. I, n- I never think that way. I always just build. And so, like you said, this is, this is a thing that more people would like to use. It's like, if I would have had forethought, I would have built it in a way that it could just be a library. And then we would have more open source stuff. So it's kind of a downfall of mine. I just don't think that way. Yeah, I also think in a weird way, having it inlined in your code base, I mean, it doesn't necessarily make it better, but it makes it easier to like see how it's being used in like a real application. Right. Versus like a tiny little microscopic package that does just user authentication with the magic link. It may have been tricky to figure out like, how do I actually implement that into my app? I mean, I guess technically if you did that, you would have implemented it into change logs. So I could have seen that, but. Right. But yeah, that would have been one implementation. Exactly. Yeah. And that's really, I've had that struggle as a library user for years. I mean, thinking back to, to the early uh, Rails gems and Devise became kind of the gold standard in Rails gems. But it was like, I can pull in Devise and it has all these features and it's great in terms of I can turn on or off certain aspects. Like, do I want the remember me thing? And do I want logging and et cetera? And they're like, pass it an argument, turns it off and on. That's all really cool. but. I would rather just have the code in my code, you know, like even if somebody else wrote it, that's why I was cool with code generators back in the day. Um, back when I used them more was because I don't want to have to peel back this black box and find ways of like, you know, overriding methods and doing all these tricky things in order to customize when I could just have the code in my code. And so maybe sure. that's another reason why I don't think in libraries because I don't like to use them very much unless they're just like, you know, a JSON encoding thing, right? Like encode the JSON, decode the JSON. I don't, I'm not going to have to peel that back, right? But um, really like application level features specifically are very, I think, difficult as dependencies. And so maybe that's why I don't think that way. Yeah, absolutely. Plus like to make a really, really good abstraction, that's, you know, I don't know if device is the best, but you know, you, yeah. can't, you can't knock it for what it is. Like it's pretty popular for, for the right. most part. But yeah, creating a good abstraction is very, very hard. And oftentimes you need to duplicate your code maybe in three, four, five, ten different projects before you get something that might even be reasonable to uh, have an, as an abstraction. Right. And that's, that's a very good point. And one that I've learned over time is that we tend to prematurely abstract things. And while I don't think in libraries, I definitely think in terms of abstractions and, and dry, right? that mm-hmm. we, we tend to really want dry. And as soon as we see a pattern once, I'm saying this is like the royal we, but I'm probably talking about myself. 
is we want to say, okay, this is, you know, pull out a function, pull out a module here, and I'm going to reuse this in 10 places. And what you find out is, A, Yagni in most cases. You actually aren't going to use it 10 times. Maybe you're going to use it twice. Maybe three times. But what you realize is that third time that you use it, it's, it's different enough contextually, code, that you're now complicating the function that you're pulling out in order to take different arguments or handle a slightly different case. And so the, the rule of three, which I think Jeff Atwood has written about and many people talk about, is so powerful, and I've learned it over time, is if you're not using it three times, and in my case, I think if they're not pretty much identical uses, then you shouldn't be drying that code up. Just go ahead and leave it wet, you know, and let it be because you're going to cause yourself more harm down the road. Uh, yep. That's something that I had to learn the hard way. It's like taken years, but now I, I see it all the time, especially in less experienced developers where it's just like, ooh, a pattern, I'm going to pull it out. And you end up causing yourself more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. So where are you at with your deal? I know you're still working on it. Um, you said nine months ago. Well, where does it stand? Nine months ago, I started it, and it was like, I'm super gung-ho about working on it, but it was so hard to really fit in, fit in the time to do it then, because I was just overburdened with too many things going on. And like, it's another weird thing to talk about, too. It's like, well, Thinkific, is, which is the platform I'm currently using now, or you know, Teachable is an alternative. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's sort of good enough. But it's right. like not quite what I want. Like there's certain things that I don't like. I don't want to just bash them openly on a podcast. But there's certain UI decisions and certain things that have happened in the past that, you know, I, I want to change these things, but I can't do it because it's not my platform. So like even things like I want to customize them, you know, the workflow for uh, actually creating a payment, but they control like the whole entire template for that mm. page, and I have no control over that. Yeah, little things like that. The problem with being in that circumstance is there's no fire under your butt, right? Because the thing that you're on is like functional and working and it's it's not as if this has to get out tomorrow or you're losing money or, or whatever it is. And so that means that you can just kind of trot along. Mm -hmm. Does you find that to be a limiting factor on your progress? Like you don't really need it that bad, so you just kind of work on it. Exactly. And it's not like people are emailing me and be like, man, Nick, you know, the platform is garbage. Like you can't click like, you know, this option or that option, like things work. Although I will say this, uh, five days ago or April 29th, uh, about mm -hmm. a week ago from here, PayPal integration just stopped working with Thinkific's platform. Like mm -hmm. people would try to pay with PayPal and an error would come up and it just says like payment provider not supported or something like that. Like it was a generic error that came up. And, uh, you know, think if it didn't notify us about this, like instructors, I mean, they have a public status page, but you're not going to the status page, like habitually, like you're not going there three times a day. Is it up? Is it up? Is it up? You know, like you would expect something as big as transactions not working for them to email you that, Hey, by the way, you know, half the people buying your courses can't pay for it. Mm. And like that kind of fueled the intensity of a thousand suns to get me going. <laughs> Another angle at this is that similar to us where our, our website stack provides us certain luxuries. And I think we do one of the things that Adam and I do is sweat all the details. We, that's just who we are. Like we want everything to be great that we do. And 
that was really where we were with WordPress. It's like, this is good, but it's never going to be great because A, we don't enjoy hacking on it and B, we're always fighting against the generic. And so that's why we built custom is that we can make things exactly the way that we want because we, we run everything. That being said, like I said before, podcasting and news CMS is not our business. Our business is creating content, right? We, we, we want to be logging the news. We want to be cre- recording and producing podcasts, not necessarily writing software because no one's banging on our doors, you know, saying more software, please. And so for in your circumstance, every hour that you spend on your custom CMS, you're, you're not spending on creating video tutorials, which is where that's where your value is, right? So that's something you probably consider too. Sure. And I mean, the reason why I'm even starting it back up now, creating the course platform, I don't know, it is hard to balance all of this stuff because doing a video course, like a 10 hour video course, like the final video length, that might take like five, maybe four full-time months of developing. Like it takes a long time to plan it out, write the scripts, get the source codes, like, and the source code needs to be not just okay, like it needs to be really like, you know, I went over it many dozens of times and had people beta test it. Like it's a huge process. So it's hard to get into the mindset where you can like balance your life almost. Like for me, it's always been like, I've always had like the horse riders on like one thing at a time type of thing, but it like nothing gets accomplished outside of making the course if you think like that. So now I'm trying to balance my time a little bit better where I'm just going to allocate an hour or two a day until the course platform has some type of MVP that I can ship out. And uh, so like, rather than being like, okay, I'm going to finish the next course I'm working on maybe mm-hmm. in like June or July or something like that, and then work on it. So I'm going to try out the balanced approach and see how that works. Yeah. Slow and steady. That's, that's a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, you, you have made your coursework. This is your full-time endeavors. All right. You've been able to support yourself completely on the coursework uh no i still do freelance work as well okay consulting plus but not like a full-time yeah no i've never been like employed at like a corporate type of programming job it's always been self-employed in some way so is it mostly training is it you know are you contracting out your development time what are you adjuncting the Uh, for for the freelance work it basically comes down to you know people usually email me which is kind of interesting as a as an aside so like the courses actually fuel quite a bit of my freelance work. So I'm not going out there really like pitching myself or looking for work. Like some people will just take my course and they're like, you want a personal experience. So mm-hmm. it's either doing custom work, like I'm actually sitting there writing code to implement something that they want. Or sometimes it's just like we hop on a call like this and uh, we do some screen sharing. They show me a project they're working on. I kind of just give insight on this and this and that. and then. I'm almost acting as like an accountability partner. Like, you know, I, I offer advice as well, but I have a number of clients where I, like once a week I meet with them and they just show me what they've done on the previous week. Like, is this good? Is this bad? What can we change? Here's like next week's stuff. You know, things like that. Yeah. I'm not sure if I ever want to like phase myself out of doing that type of work because it, it, it almost comes full circle, circle back to like creating the courses. Like when I work with these people, um, on a regular basis, like I'm being exposed to all sorts of crazy, like interesting and cool problems that I never would have been exposed to if I didn't speak with them. So I often get like decent blog post ideas or even like course topics that I can always, you know, make generic. Like I'm never going to use their company name or anything like that. 
but yeah, it, it's a good idea generator. Yeah. I'm in a similar spot. I've been doing uh, contract dev since 06 and uh, on my own since 2012 and continue to this day to do that. And the change log has always been uh, my side project. Now, Adam, uh, we've been fortunate that Adam was able to make it his full-time project. It was always a hobby slash side project for him up until I think it was man, probably been three or four years now, 2015 or 2016, he went full-time on change log. Um, and so it's been going very well. And we're at a point now where I could come on full-time uh, anytime now. So we're, we're getting close to doing that. One of the things that I've always thought was a, a must-have, even in, I've, I've taught web development as well, uh, is having real-world experience on a day-to-day basis. Like not, being, not moving into the realm of someone who just talks about things. <laughs> you know, even as a teacher. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be a teacher that just taught what I used to do or taught what I used to, you know, what I've learned. I wanted to have actual real world, you know, in the trenches experience to bring to my teaching. And the same thing with podcasting, like these conversations. Um, it helps being in, in the thick of it day to day and having client work where everything is, you know, it, like you said, I've seen it all. I've, I've experienced lots of different code bases, the different circumstances. And that being said, my desire is to move over and do change log full time and not do the client work because lots of reasons that we could go into if you find it interesting, but I'm sure you, you probably know the reasons pretty well um, mm-hmm. as a freelancer yourself. But then the question is like, well, are you, how are you going to stay sharp? How are you going to, and I think the answer to that is, eh, there's tons of software that I can be writing around here and I'm always going to be writing software. It just won't be other people's software. It'll be our software which to me has a huge, uh, it's like a tractor beam, you know, like that's, that's engaging. That's something I would love to be doing because I've been writing software for other people for so long. But I definitely have that concern of like, maybe I'll lose a technical edge by not exposing myself to so much software besides, you know, our internal projects. Yeah, no, that's also, that is something I've thought about in the past too. It's like for wanting my own course platform, because that really is the ultimate, you know, it's like the change log equivalent for a course creator, like having your whole platform that you just develop yourself and maintain, like yeah. that is real world experience. If people are signing up, paying money, watching sure. courses. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it, my, my hope is, is that not only, you know, building, continuing to use our platform as real world, you know, production, just day-to-day grind software, but also now having the freedom to experiment with more of the things that we come across because just time-based, I mean, there's so many software projects that we either have on the shows or it pops up in Changelog Nightly and I log it on Changelog News that I would love to actually dive deeper into these things, but I just don't have time now. Um, Whereas I believe I'll have time to do deeper dives, maybe in video, maybe on the streams, um, like I was doing on Twitch for a little while, into you know other people's software and, and the community and contribute back some more um, and stay sharp that way, which I just don't have time now because I have client work really balancing out my schedule. So that's another hope is I'll have the platform, I'll have our inter- internal tooling to work on, and then I can also do more experimental coding which let's face it, that's the fun stuff, right? Sure. I have a question for you though. 
like how much time do you actually put into the changelog code base? Like infrastructure, the actual application, et cetera? Personally, um, not very much at this point. Um, it's, you know, it comes in fits and spurts. We have, uh, we have ongoing, you know, ongoing features that, that I work on, but, um, are you looking for like an hours per week kind of a number? I mean, it's not like, yeah, a, I mean like a rough a, estimates kind of. Yeah. I would say at, like in the current phase, I th- think we're probably at, you know, five or 10 hours a week on the code specifically. Um, there's a lot of stuff um, kind of around the code and around our, you know, our site, our infrastructure, uh, even just working inside the community that, that flushes that out. But, it's not a full-time job by any means. Right. You're probably putting way more hours in because you're in the active development phase. I mean, we have feature, we have a feature list and we have things I'm working on, but they all kind of interact. Like for instance, right now we're doing something called metacasts, which is kind of a, I mean, I was about to say kind of a hack. It's completely a hack. Um, but I think it could be pretty cool. So one of the issues that we have is our, uh, our search kind of sucks inside of podcast indexes and directories. Like finding us inside of Apple Podcasts, finding us inside of Overcast, which has, has gotten a lot better, finding us in Spotify, etc., isn't as easy as we think it should be. And it's obviously a primary way that, that people find us is they're searching for things inside of the podcasts, indexes. Um, and some of that's just because these indexes have really rudimentary search engines. And so for, for typical phrases, this is kind of like search engine optimization, but only inside podcast indexes. For certain topics and phrases and stuff, we're just nowhere to be found, and we can't figure out why. I mean, all the metadata is there. Um, we've done all the things that I know to do to you know, make it as good as possible, um, but it's not good enough. So what we want to do is create these things called metacasts, which is basically a... A kind of a cross-cutting met- podcast based on topics and specific podcasts, which can have its own name, have its own artwork, um, and hit really strongly on specific keywords inside. And we will, we, they won't be publicly on the website. They'll just have RSS. And they will be submitted as new podcasts, podcasts as new podcasts to Apple, etc., to Spotify. Um, but they're going to be keyword-based. So, for instance, maybe just easier with an example, Kubernetes. Kubernetes is very popular. People would love a podcast about Kubernetes. There are Kubernetes podcasts, but across our five shows, especially GoTime and the Changelog, there's tons of Kubernetes uh, content. So a metacast on Kubernetes and basically cloud-native things, right? Um, where it pulls in based on the topics that we tag our episodes with, specific episodes from those podcasts, um, so that we can have a podcast called Kubernetes Shows, or you know, Kubernetes from the Changelog. And that's the very first word in the title will really help us, in, we think, in the podcast indexes. So that's something that I'm building right now. Internally, we call it Metacasts. Um, but that also is like tied into some of the artwork changes that were changed, because each one has to have their own artwork. So there's like some design decisions involved and there's um, there's other reasons why it hasn't quite shipped yet. It's not done, but I can't just pour, I can't just like crank it out and be done. 
And so there's like things that that are timeout based, you know, like they're just kind of like product things that slow down development. Right. A lot of good stuff packed in that conversation. Yeah. Do you think that have you have you uh, done any search engine optimization or anything like that? Uh, a little bit. So that's like a whole topic that I've been thinking about for like the last four or five years when I started uh, making a blog. It's like, well, do I want to put all of my content on my main like nickgenatakis.com site? Or because right now I actually host my courses on their own domain names. So like dive into docker.com, build a etc. So I really just have that one landing page for the course, you know, like the description of the course before you would buy it. Whereas like all of my content, like I don't know how many blog posts, like 200 something, they all live on my main site. And I always think like, I wonder if it would be better if like, if certain content were posted on those uh, course domains instead, like Docker content on the Docker course. But it, 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 goes, it, it really comes back down to like abstractions. Like, well, if I put all of my Docker blog posts on the Dive into Docker domain, because that's one course, what happens if I make a new course, which I'm planning on making for Docker in the future? It's like, well, do blog posts go on that second Docker course's domain name or the first one? Or somewhere else, like right. it becomes a weird mess now of like where does content go? Yes. I would tend if you were looking for a take on that, I would say Sure. I would say at the end of the day, what you offer is your it is your teaching. And so I would tend to put everything on nickgenatakis.com and then you know link to the specific courses. Well, I could I could flip flop on that. That's a tough one. Um, long term, I think you'll do better to build your own personal brand versus these specific, uh, course brands because you will outlast your courses, especially in this industry. Yeah. But then you also risk the chance of attracting someone to your blog and having them not ever know that, by the way, you have a Docker course that they are interested in. So if you do a good job of the cross promotion and the CTA in your blog design, maybe linking to specific things based on what you're writing about. I would tend to think I would put everything under my name versus the courses, but I could definitely be talked out of that too. That's just my first initial thoughts on it. Yeah. So like, I don't know if you want to look at the site now, probably don't have to, but like I do have a, like a courses link in the nav bar and then it just gives you a listing of all my courses. But of course, you know, if I do write a blog post that's relevant to Docker, let's say, you know, there is like a call to action at the top that says, Hey, by the way, look who has a Docker course, you know? Yeah, I feel like developers, you know, we're both developers ourselves. Like, I don't know, I'm basically immune to advertising basically entirely. Like, of course, I run ad block. Like, I would never even think to do paid ads. But even like any marketing stuff, like, really, you're going to put like pop ups on your page? Like, unless your content is unbelievably amazing, like, I'm just never going to, you know, I'm just going to immediately close. So it's very hard, I find, to market to developers. And like, that's also something I've been struggling with for a while, but I, I don't know. I just keep powering through, create video content, text content. Like I, I don't try to word my blog posts to be sales pitches. Like I just write about the thing naturally. And um, I don't know if it's the most effective thing in the world. I mean, it works okay, but you know, there's still, I'm sure there's ways to improve and it's an yeah. interesting thing. I think it's a balance looking at your website right now. I would definitely say you're learning Docker with my newest course banner i think that's really solid i think it's not obtrusive the fact that you have the taste to not 
uh, overlay, you know, sign up for my newsletter, buy my new course as I'm reading is key. I'm an insta close on anybody who pops up anything on me, uh, yeah. which is the same thing that we do. And we have a strong call to action to sign up when you hit the homepage signed out. Tangle.com, you're signed out. There's a nice big banner there. Um, it's not an overlay, but it is. You can't miss it. You can exit out and we'll store that in a cookie so we won't show it to you again. Um, and if you're signed in, it obviously doesn't show it to you because you've already signed up. But we are we try to stay super tasteful with any sort of promotion that we do because we hate being offended by pushy people, you know, like we're developers, you know. So I would say I'd say you're doing quite well in that regard. Um, I like your little I'm just looking at one of your blog posts as a quick jump down to a video is cool. I would say this one I'm looking at isn't. Do you have one that's specifically like this one I'm looking at is calculate invoice amounts with Bash? Oh. This is your most recent one. Here we go, yeah. Docker tips. So does this one have its own at the end? Yeah, there's a little CTA at the bottom where people can actually, well, in the right. Docker posts, they can sign up for free and, and they get a little like email-based Docker course that eases them into the paid course, like the video course if they want. Mm. But uh, of course, opt-in, it's not like an annoying pop-up type of thing, which is yeah. funny because, I don't know, I don't think I'm a natural when it comes to sales. Like for me, sales has always been like the snake oil, like car salesman. It's like buy my stuff while he's like hovering over your face. But uh, so to get better at sales, you like, what do you do when you want to get better at stuff? Like you practice things, you read up. So like I read so many different like copywriting books and tried to follow all of these like quote unquote influencers on YouTube, like right. people who are like, you know, internet marketing gurus and like they're all like, oh yeah, you have to have all these pop-ups and things like this and like, you know, hammer the person with like 10,000 ways to opt in. Like even newsletters, like, I don't know, like when was the last time, like you're, I'm not bashing newsletters because your whole entire business makes sense to have a newsletter. But mm -hmm. like for the random developer like me, who's just a dude blogging about whatever the heck I'm interested in, like bash scripts and Docker and Flask and programming and Elixir, like you're not going to sign up for that guy's newsletter. Like what is he going to give you like that, that's that valuable, you know? Yeah, I do know. That being said, it seems like you do have a fair amount of content that would be <laughs> pretty valuable to people. You do have the, you do have the free, like the email course, which I think is a good way of, of going about it. But do you mean like a weekly thing where like you're, yeah, you're writing a newsletter every week, right? Even if it's like custom like things or just regurgitating the blog posts because maybe you don't go to the site, you know, manually. Yeah, it's interesting. Nadia Ekbal recently wrote a post which I. Uh, really appreciated. Um, it's called The Perks of Patronage. She just wrote it a few weeks back. And it's a very interesting thing. I don't know if you're familiar with Nadia's work at all, but she's uh, she's a, a, a longtime community member of ours and has written a lot about open source sustainability, a lot of the human side of, the, of software and technology. Um, very insightful stuff. And, and there she's writing about like what patronage looks like nowadays and what people are coming for um when they're subscribing to somebody right whether it's uh a twitch streamer or they're buying video courses um i think specifically she's focusing on patreon and kickstarter is kind of the subjects of that post I'll, I'll send you the link to read it but one of the things that she says that was interesting to me um which I hadn't really considered before. And it made me want to do, I don't know, more, more, more stuff that's like personality based or personal 
or even like backstage, like we've been doing backstage for a while. We don't record it very often, but I want to do more backstage stuff because she says that there's a, actually a relationship to a person that matters more than like the value, you know, the, the ones and zeros of what you're providing them or the, the dollar value of this content is worth this value. Um, so anyways, I don't, I don't have much <laughs> beyond that to say about it. It's made me change a little bit my perspective because I, I would originally agree with you, but now I might say, well, maybe people just like to hear from Nick Janitakis and maybe they appreciate your work and you do help them learn and uh, they would love to just keep up with you know, what you're doing and what your thoughts are on whatever it is you think is interesting to write about. And some of this has been is kind of around this idea of the new rise of newsletters, like personal newsletters as the newer, the newest social network, as people tend to move, are starting to move away from public everything and to more private inbox based writing, kind of a, a new version of blogging. Anyways, I'll send you that link. Yeah, might, please. It, it might uh, stoke some of your thoughts on that, but. But no, I, I 100%. Well, first let me get this straight here. Like I think the value of the newsletter is as high as it gets. Like when I, when I'm ready to release a new course, like, I am sending that out to my list. Like that's how I make, you know, whatever. A, a very large percentage of the course selling income is from those initial uh, email blasts or whatever. You know, very infrequently. But um, yeah, no, I totally agree about. Like, do you people, read newsletters? Do you sign up for newsletters? Uh it's so funny how that works. At least for my brain, like I'm signed up to a number of newsletters, and I read like almost none of them. Mm. What about RSS? Do you where do you get your news? Uh I pretty much check. Well, unfortunately, well, maybe fortunately, I don't know. Like, I just go to Hacker News every once in a while. Uh huh. And by once in a while, I mean like every fifteen seconds. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's not that bad. But yeah, no. Usually, I just scan. I scan Hacker News, and then maybe some Reddit, uh, some subreddits. Yeah. So I was addicted to Hacker News for years. I was one of the the very early adopters. Of Hacker News. I went straight from Dig to Hacker News when Dig went south. I know a lot of people went Dig Reddit and then Hacker News eventually. Um, and so because I saw Hacker News and it's what I would consider the glory days, of course, this is like the person who discovers the band. And then when everybody comes they, and likes their band, they think they've sold out. But uh, Hacker News used to be a treasure trove of, of everything. And uh, I've weaned myself. The way I actually weaned myself off of Hacker News was by subscribing to the Hacker Newsletter. Because there's this thought of like, I'm going to miss out. And so I have to check what's, you know, what's number one today or whatever that, that thing is where you say, you know, once in a while, every 15 minutes. Because I used to be on there all the time. Um, probably 10 years ago now, maybe eight years ago. And Hacker Newsletter really helped me out because uh, he does a great job of basically including all the links that are, <laughs> are good that week. And he sends it on a Friday, I think it's Friday morning or Saturday morning if he slacks. And so you just don't have to go there and you can still uh, feel like you're keeping up. And so that's, that's the way I, I weaned off Hacker News. I actually have used Reddit more now than I used to. Um, specific subreddits are, are pretty good. Uh, the homepage is, is trash mostly, but yeah. Um, yeah, I still do RSS. I mean, I, I, I subscribe to specific people. Again, it's, it's that personal touch. Like I'm not going to subscribe to The Verge on RSS. That's just insanity. Or I personally wouldn't subscribe to Changelog News on RSS because we're going to post five to ten things a day 
and I don't want that. I want, you know, I want to know what Nick's written lately. I, I subscribe to specific developers' blogs because they're infrequent and high quality usually. Um, but I also do newsletters now, and, and I used to subscribe. I used to be like a kill the newsletter kind of guy, like no email. It's actually kind of nice having something just put in your inbox once a week, and of course you can ignore it if you want to. But um, I like how it's packaged up and presented and it's yeah. not like a daily or a minute by minute stream of what's happening. It's kind of time box. Yeah. I've even had some people who have subscribed to my list be like, just send more stuff. Like, I, I feel like when you find just someone who you like, stuff. because for a while it just got to be like, I would post something like every like three or four months, like very, very, very infrequently. But mm -hmm. I think, yeah, when, when someone connects with you at the human level and like they're one of your true fans or whatever, and yeah, you just want to consume as much of their content as possible, I think. That's how I am. When I find someone interesting, like I'm just going to binge all the, like everything they do. Yeah. I've never done, I've never been a binger. Like, you, will you go back catalog? Like, if you find a podcast that, or a person who podcasts and you find them at episode 68, will you go back to one and just like back catalog them? I wouldn't watch all of them from like one up, but I would absolutely go to the back catalog and just look through all the topics and see like which titles catch my eye. Like, oh, that sounds interesting. And I'll be way more lax about that too. Like if I really, really, really enjoyed one of their podcasts, I would be more inclined to watch more of their older stuff versus someone who is like a so-so podcast, you know? So-so, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't even go back, but. Yeah, that's what always surprises me. So if I find somebody... I will rarely go back. Like I will subscribe and I will be faithful subscriber to new content, but I'm just not really a back catalog person unless yeah, I mean, there's some slight exceptions to that, but pretty much that's a rule. Um, but we have so many people that go back catalog on our shows that always surprises me. You know, they're like back, they listen to episodes one through 20. And I'm going to just say to you, if you like the change log, okay, go back to 200, maybe go back to 300, but don't go back to one through 20 because We've gotten a lot better at what we do since then. And there is, you know, there's some, uh, there's some low rent podcasts back there in that catalog. So, yeah, that's definitely a testament to like creating content, just like coding. Like at the start, it's going to be pretty bad, but then you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And uh, 400 episodes later, it's good. Yeah. How many, how many videos have you done? Uh, 190 of them are in the Flask course. Docker oh course has like 75. Yeah, there's probably been about like 20 hours of like actual Final Cut video. But I mean, like that's just the amount of recording that took place to get to that point was a lot. So I don't have like exact hard metrics off the top of my head, but usually for like every one minute of final like video that I'll release to someone, it's about seven or eight minutes of real life time to get to that. So just between like having to take and retake and then editing yeah. and all that stuff. I'd love to hear your process real quick, maybe before we uh, tail off here, how you go about maybe and even tell me how it's changed over the years, but specifically what are you doing now and what works well for you? Uh, specifically, well, I'll try to condense this. I don't know how much time we have left, but um, like oh. 10, 15 minutes, something like that. It's our show. It can be as long as we want it to. Okay. I'll, I'll try, to, I'll try <laughs> but, not to yeah, ramble 10 to 15 long. sounds fine. Yeah. So, yeah, so like when I first started doing courses, I basically, I didn't even have like a real microphone. Basically, my cousin had a, one of, like a non-Radio Shack microphone, you know, like those really wimpy sure. ones. He had a, yeah. like something that looked reasonable. Okay, so let me use that. And uh, yeah, like 
back then I didn't even use like noise reduction and all this other stuff. And you can hear like crickets in the outside because it was during the summertime and it was like 8,000 degrees with the windows open. <laughs> like it wasn't like extremely bad, but I also had right. terrible headphones. So like I didn't even hear half that stuff then. Like ignorance is bliss type of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so then eventually like I, you know, as I did more courses, like I upgraded my equipment. Now, uh, well, for the longest time I was using this one program, uh, ASIO Link Pro on Windows. And basically what it allowed you to do was, like I was never the type of person who wanted to record my audio and then have to go in and actually like, you know, remove noise for all the tracks and then import it into my video afterwards. Like I much rather have all of that stuff done in real time just so it would just save, it saves so much time in the editing process. So like one of my biggest improvements for workflow was, you know, a couple of years ago, I started using that ASIO Link Pro program, which allowed me to take input from my microphone, direct it through that program, put it into like an actual like digital audio workstation. I happened to use Reaper back then, like do the noise cancellation and leveling and compression there, and then mm -hmm. output it directly to the program I was using to record the videos. So like when I hit record to record a video, my audio was already pristine, like in final form. So that saved a ton of time with editing, but then mm. something really, really, really unfortunate happened. And like, I feel terrible about it. Like the developer of that software literally died and his brother ended up making oh. a post on the subreddit and like, yeah. So, and it was one of those programs that, you know, it wasn't free, whatever. It was like 50 bucks or something, but it had mm -hmm. a registration server key where it phones home every time you open the program. And well, with him, the server went down as well. So I literally couldn't record my courses anymore. Like, I mean, his problems are a lot worse than mine, but uh, yeah, that made me rethink about my whole entire audio situation. And right now what I'm doing is um, I have like a, you know, like a $60 dynamic mic that has an XLR output and uh, or input, and it goes right to like an audio interface. I don't know if you know, like Scarlett 2i2, it's like that red. Sitting on my desk right over there. Yeah, so that, that's a pretty good audio interface. It seems to work well on Windows, Mac, and even Linux. So I have that hooked up, but then I also have uh, now a, a new piece of hardware that's basically replacing that ASIO Link Pro that does like noise cancellation and a little bit of compression and DSing. That's uh, the DBX286S. A little bit expensive. I think it was like $199, but yeah, basically it just means that now I can just Put the mic on and talk and i don't have to worry about the audio quality at all like it might be a little bit weird over skype but when you're doing it like in a, a legit you know with no network latency and stuff the audio the audio comes out pretty good and then uh for like the editing process with the videos yeah i just use a program called camtasia which works on windows and mac uh, also a paid program but uh yeah i basically hit record on that or sometimes i use obs when i want to do some webcam stuff but uh yeah i'll just edit all my videos in there I think it's Camtasia is pretty nice because it's very, very optimized for screencast style of videos where you're recording your desktop with maybe a webcam. But sometimes like in post-production, I want to do things like, like zoom, zoom into a specific area of my screen or maybe highlight a specific area with like, um, like a highlighter or like a fade out type of thing. There's all these really nice effects where you can do like overlays and tooltips with text that is just very, very, very hard to do with other video editing programs. Like, uh, Caden Live or DaVinci Resolve, which are some open source. Well, DaVinci's not open source, but they're free technically. But yeah, uh, for me, I think just like coding, it's like when you're making courses, you want to make a very good 
like you want to always improve your workflow to create the content as fast as possible and have it look as good as you can within reason. So that's pretty much my process now. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I've used Camtasia. Seems like pretty good software. I got the Scarlet sitting over there. Yeah. Um, I haven't done too much in terms of video, just kind of dipping my toes into that into that water, but always interested in hearing how people create good, you know, good coding videos go about it. So I want to change it around though. Like uh, about, a, I don't know if it was a year ago, six months ago, maybe I did want to. So like right now, I don't know if you know this, but I am running Windows, unfortunately, at least there's the subsystem for Linux, which is pretty decent. Like my whole dev environment is actually driven by Tmux and Vim and all this other stuff, like very mm-hmm. command line focused. And it's actually pretty good. But I did want to switch to native Linux, but unfortunately, I had some issues with uh, with the Scarlet in Linux. Like I kept getting these weird, like little, like the audio would completely drop out, like a hardware malfunction type of dropout. Mm. Like it wasn't even like, um, what's that term? It wasn't like something was giving, getting overloaded. It was just like a signal drop. But apparently it's not happening to everybody. And I was using like the Debian testing uh, channel. So maybe there was something wrong with that. But yeah, ideally, like I would love to go native Linux and just record with like FFmpeg on hotkeys and like right. optimize the heck out of it. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, Lin- Linux and hardware, you know, historically have been the source of many, many lost hours of people trying to figure out why the Wi-Fi doesn't work or why this particular headset doesn't work or that interface or it's uh it's i think it's been the i wouldn't say the downfall but it's definitely been a stumbling block for a lot of people using linux is those particular weird scenarios with drivers or whatever it happens to be and so that's yeah. always been i mean that's that's where we're at with recording with people with on on linux uh, especially because we use skype and skype on linux is just not, not reliable software, whereas for, for audio calls, Skype on the other two platforms is reliable software. Um, it's not the best user experience, but it is best in terms of latency and keeping that connection alive. Um, when we have somebody who calls in and they're like, I'm on Linux, we're like, oh, it's going to be a long afternoon <laughs> because, <laughs> because things are going to go not well. And it just it's a shame because uh, everything else about it, in my experience, is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's really unfortunate too because uh, I discovered i3, which is a tiling window manager. Mm, I don't know yeah, if you know a little bit about that stuff, but oh god, like there's nothing on Windows that's even remotely comparable. Like, sure, there's some built-in hotkeys where you can split like two windows, left or right or up or down. But yeah, right. like a proper tiled window manager. I don't know. I fell in love with it immediately, but now I feel like that alone is enough to switch to native Linux if I can get my audio working well. Because there's hardcore solutions to get Camtasia to run on Linux. Uh, like, it doesn't run natively on Linux, but you can technically buy a second video card and then do, like, a GPU pass-through virtual machine through, like, KVM. And mm. um, then it's almost like the VM has dedicated access to that second uh, GPU or video card that you have. And then you can actually just run Windows on that. And then it's like you're kind of running, you know, Windows and Linux side-by-side but Linux is still like your primary host OS type of deal. Right. But yeah, I should, I, cool. I've seen people game at like, you know, 120 frames per second on very modern games through that type of setup. So I'm pretty sure video editing should be fine. There's a piece of software. I can't think of the name of it right now where you can 
basically merged two machines across two monitors with one mouse, one keyboard. Mm, I've heard of that. Yeah, I've used it. It worked really well. In fact, somebody put it in Ping. Let me look it up. Ping is our repo on GitHub where people suggest shows and stuff. Um, and they said, you should have these guys on. And I was like, I used to love that software. And um, what's it called? Yeah, I know exactly and what you're talking about, but I can't think of it. The guy didn't actually end up coming on. Otherwise, I would totally understand or remember what it was. I would have interviewed him. But, uh, it for sure starts with an S. But I think what I'm going to do is, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of working on a course now. So once that course is rolled up and out, uh, I may experiment a little bit more with some native Linux stuff, even if it involves buying like a completely different set of hardware. Synergy. Yes. Maybe. That's all right. I found it. The story of Synergy. Uh, Synergy is, that, that's the name of the thing. I found it. It was closed. I close them once I do the invite, just to keep it uh, keep it cleanly. But uh, I feel like the guy just never responded. The story of synergy, yeah, this stuff goes back years. And so basically, what it is, I mean, talk about a hack. It's basically a thing that bridges. And I think you install the client on both machines. Like, let's say you have Windows on your left hand machine, your 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 monitor on the left, and Linux on your monitor on the right. And a single keyboard, single mouse, you install. I think one's a, it's a client server, if I remember. So you install it on Windows, then you install the client on Linux. And it just, it just I mean, Synergy is a pretty good name, even though it's a lame business term for this, because it actually just merges the two. It feels like one machine. And you're switching environments just by dragging your mouse across to the other monitor. Uh, it's pretty cool. Synergy. Combine your computers into one cohesive experience. Share one mouse and keyboard between multiple on computers. And yeah, it, it it's one of those things where you just think like, ah, it's going to be buggy. And maybe there's bugs. I'm sure there's bugs in software. But man, it sure worked seamlessly for me back when I used it. I had a, a similar scenario where I wanted to use Linux, but I had like specific Windows needs. This was way back, you know, before it was, uh, before the hardware on laptops was really strong enough to, to do VMs and stuff without, you know, totally bogging your machine down. So I ran two machines side by side. You can even copy and paste between the computers. Cool. Yeah, there was a video I watched of it uh, a couple months back, and uh, it was very nice. Like, it seamlessly moved the mouse from one OS to the other. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just kind of, when you, each time you do it, you're kind of impressed. Every time you drag that mouse across to the other OS, it's just like, oh, man. Cool, Nick. Well, this has been fun. Like I said, uh, Backstage is a great place to talk shop. You and I have lots of shop that interacts with each other. Love hearing about what you're up to. And uh, make sure you send me any links, things that we mentioned, so we can put them in the show notes so that people are interested. I'll put Synergy in there, as I'm sure listeners are at least intrigued if they've never heard of that one. And uh, listeners, let us know if you enjoyed this. We have discussions on changelove.com. Speaking of our custom CMS, we've recently added commentary. So while everybody else removes comments from their websites, we're putting them back. We're putting them back on the website. And uh, one of the cool things about that is you can discuss specific episodes. So all news items get comments and each episode of a podcast gets its own news item. So you can comment on podcast episodes. So to do that, uh, if you open your show notes, there's a link to it in the show notes. It says, I think, discuss on changelog news or something like that. Click that link. If you're on the website, uh, click the discuss button there in the, in the toolbar. Let us know what you think. If you have questions for Nick or for me, if you like this style 
episode. Let us know if you hate this and hope we never publish it again. Well, don't be mean about it, but uh, we appreciate that feedback as well. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing this more often if people think it's something they want to listen to. On that note, um, thanks a lot for having me. And on the topic of comments really quick, like I'm real happy that you're adding that feature or have added it to the uh, ChangeLog site because that's going to come in handy for my platform as well. <laughs> Anything else I can, I can add to our site so that you can Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Benefit. So what you can do is uh, in the markdown preview for the comments in that text box, let's, let's get things set up. And by let's, I mean like purely you. Let's add some okay. front end capability where I can take some image in my clipboard or drag and drop the image in there, oh, have yeah. it get uploaded and produce the URL, like similar to GitHub, how they do the issue comment. Yep. Uh, I would be a very, very happy person if that were to happen by tomorrow afternoon. Oh boy. Well, uh, I can't, I can, actually, I can, I can make a guarantee on timing. It won't happen by tomorrow afternoon. That being said, if you procrastinate long enough, that's definitely on our hit list because we want, you know, we want the commentary, uh, to be as, I don't know, as capable as people are used to on other websites. So that's definitely something that we will be doing. Um, it's not it's not anytime real soon so that's okay plenty of other things to work on <laughs> all right see you later nick all right thanks bye